Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Greetings, everyone, from the Garden State of New Jersey. This is your host, Frank Redding. I am going to be focusing and talking about the year of 1983 today. This was my first year of being a super interested mega fan. The following organizations were the credible organizations in the sport of boxing during the year of 1983. The World Boxing Association, which was president by Gilberto Mendoza. The World Boxing Council, president was Jose Suleiman. In lieu of the Duke Ku Kim and Ray Mancini tragedy, the previous year, the World Boxing Council had changed the championship total rounds to 12. The first fight held under the new 12-round limit occurred on January the 31st. Rafael Arono KO'd in four rounds Pedro Romero. This bout took place in Caracas, Venezuela, and was held in World Boxing Council Junior Bantamweight Championship fight. International Boxing Federation was the new kid on the block. It was headquartered in Springfield, New Jersey, and the president was Robert Lee, the first recognized IBF champion was on December the 13th, Marvin Camel KO'd Roddy McDonald in Halifax, Nova Scotia for the Cruiserweight Championship of the World. The IBF would not be fully recognized till the next previous year, 1984. Lucrative fights of the year of 1983 were as follows. On March 18th, Michael Spinks, the WBA champion, opposed Dwight Muhammad Kalwi, the WBC champion for the Unified Light Heavyweight Championship of the World, held in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Michael Spinks won a 15-round decision. September the 9th, Alexis Arguello opposed WBA junior welterweight champion Aaron Pryor in Las Vegas. Arguello was attempting to become the first man in boxing history to win championships in four 
different weight divisions. This would be their second fight. Aaron Pryor stopped Arguello in round number 10. On November the 10th, middleweight champion Marvin Hagler had defended his world middleweight championship in his first super fight of date against WBA junior middleweight champion the Hands of Stone Roberto Durand. This contest took place in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Hagler won a close 15-round decision. The fighter of the year was Marvelous Marvin Hagler, who defended his championship a total of three different times, defeating Tony Simpson, Wilford Scipion, and Roberto Duran. Marvin Hagler passed away on March 13th of 2021 at the age of 66, untimely and unexpectedly. Rest in peace, champion. The fight of the year took place on May the 15th. Bobby Chacon won a 12-round decision in the second fight with Cornelius Boza Edwards in Las Vegas, Nevada. It was a slugfest bloodbath. The upset of the year was held on September the 23rd in Richfield, Ohio. WBA champion, Ohio native, Michael Dokes, defended his championship against Harry Kutsia from South Africa. Kutsia stopped Dokes in the 10th round and became the first Caucasian to win the heavyweight championship since 1959, Ingmar Johansson, and he was the first African to hold the heavyweight championship of the world. The comeback of the year was Hands of Stone, Roberto Duran, who on January the 29th knocked out former welterweight champion Pepino Cuevas in four rounds. On June the 16th, Duran's 32nd birthday in Madison Square Garden, he totally annihilated the WBA junior middleweight champion, a relative novice, Davey Moore, in eight rounds. It was an epic night, ladies and gentlemen. Jake and Vicky LaMotta were in attendance, Muhammad Ali, Ray Mancini, and marvelous Marvin Hagler. The most active champion of the year was heavyweight champion Larry Holmes, who defended his championship a total of four different times. His first title defense of 1983 was against Lucian Rodriguez. He won a 12-round decision in Scranton, Pennsylvania on March the 27th. It was the same town as the first pro debut on March the 21st of 1973. He won a four-round decision over Rodel Dupree. He would go on that year to defeat Tim Witherspoon, Scott Frank, and Marvis Frazier. On May 20th of 1983, the 
Two heavyweight title fights were held on the same card of historical first. Larry Holmes won a 12-round decision over Tim Witherspoon, and Michael Dokes had a draw with Mike Weaver in 15 rounds, their second fight. The most popular fighter of the year going into 1983 was the WBA lightweight champion, Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Mancini, since the previous year, had become a mainstream superstar since the retirement of Sugar Ray Leonard. He was the face of boxing and the man who the big fights and the big money went through. The all-American boy with a touch of mozzarella. However, by the end of 1983, Mancini drew heavy criticism from the boxing experts and the boxing media. He defended his title only once. On September the 15th, in Madison Square Garden, he defeated top-rated unknown contender from Peru, Orlando Romero, with a ninth-round stoppage. This was the knockout of the year, and Mancini's Madison Square Garden big building debut. To Mancini, it was a dream come true. His father, the original Boom Boom Lenny Mancini, had fought in Madison Square Garden on several different occasions, many decades before. Mancini had two non-title fights. On February the 6th, he won a 10-round decision over George Feeney in Italy. And on November the 25th, he stopped Johnny Torres in one round. While preparing for a May 27th title defense in South Africa against Kenny Bang Bang Bogner from New Jersey, Mancini suffered a bizarre shoulder injury, which put him off on the shelf for nearly half the year. He was sparring with Teddy Hatfield from Tennessee when this injury had occurred. Mancini would be the first time in boxing history, ladies and gentlemen, that a lightweight would receive a purse of $1 million. The following boxers who would become multi-division champions were born this year. Juan Diaz, Juan Manuel Lopez, and Roberto Guerrero. The following boxing figures had departed us this year. On March the 28th, Patty Flood, 48 years of age, a popular New York City gym owner and promoter. On May 31st, Jack Dempsey, the former legendary heavyweight champion of the world from 1919 to 1926, passed away at the age of 88. Dempsey was the sports figure along with Babe Ruth of the decade of the 1920s. His restaurant, Jack Dempsey's, was opened up from 1935 to 1974. My father and my brother-in-law 
during this time period had met Jack Dempsey as they were both little children at the time and both said the same thing that Dempsey had a hand like a shovel. On July the 1st, Richard Green, 46 years of age, had passed away. He was the official in the Ray Mancini Dooku Kim fight the previous year. I am an individual who credits the lesser recognized, undocumented boxers of yesteryear. The men who received little recognition and meager incomes, but who, in essence, define the sport of boxing. It's a labor of love. The tragedies that occurred during this year were as follows. On September the 1st, in a WBC bantamweight championship for the vacant crown, Alberto Tweedy Davila knocked out Kiko Benigis in Los Angeles, California. Kiko would die of his injuries a total of three days later on September the 4th. This match was held in Los Angeles, California. On September 30th, one of the great matchups and fights of all time had occurred in the Felt Forum in Madison Square Garden. Juan Ramon Cruz had opposed Gino Perez. These are lightweights, and Cruz knocked out Gino Perez in seven rounds. Perez lapsed into a coma and died little over a week later. There's several different ironies involved in this fight. The first is as follows. Gino Perez was several years before on February the 28th of 1981 in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Had a fight with a gentleman named Fred Bowman, who was a rival of Ray Mancini from the Amateurs. He stopped Bowman in a total of six rounds, and Bowman lapsed into a coma, and over a year later passed away from his injuries. In the corner of Juan Ramon Cruz was legendary welterweight champion Emil Griffith, who in 1962 on March the 24th, in the third contest, had stopped Benny Kid Perret in a welterweight championship belt. Perret was from Cuba, and he lapsed into a coma and died shortly thereafter. Still another irony was involved in this great fight, ladies and gentlemen. Nearly two months before, on August the 5th, Robert Adams had knocked out Michael DeLaRue in 10 rounds. DeLaRue from Keel Gardens, New York, in their second fight. De La Rue lapsed into a coma. However, the story had a happy ending. He did recover. Needless to say, he never fought again. The controversies for the year are as follows. On June the 16th, the Roberto Duran Davy Moore undercard, the fight right before the main event, Irish Billy Collins from 
Tennessee had fought a gentleman named Luis Resto from New York City. Resto was a journeyman, light-punching, fringe contender, and Collins was a man with high hopes on the way up. Throughout the contest, Resto pulverized Collins and won a 10-round decision. As Billy Collins' father, Billy Sr., had shook Resto's hand at the end of the fight, he discovered that there seemed to be something wrong with the gloves. The New York Athletic Commission had confiscated the gloves and a thorough investigation was conducted. It was discovered that much padding was removed from the gloves. Luis Resto and his corner man, Panama Lewis, were barred from boxing for life and did extremely long jail sentences. Billy Collins never fought again and lapsed into a deep depression. Collins died on March the 6th of 1984, and it was said by those who knew him that he really died on June the 16th of 1983 after that fight was over. He had bad damage to both his eyes. Several famous boxers never fought during the year of 1983. Sugar Ray Leonard and Jerry Cooney. The super fights and matchups which were in the making but never occurred were as follows. Ray Mancini against Aaron Pryor and Ray Mancini against Hector Macho Camacho. There are several things that never caught on during the year of 1983 or in the sport of boxing. Thumbless gloves were introduced by Everlast. However, like the beta video recorder, they never truly did catch on. Good evening, everyone, and all listeners be healthy, well, and safe. Good night. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com ROW number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code SHN15 follow the link on the show notes This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network 
back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.